Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is David Cowdery, CEO of the Cavalry and Guards Club in London and phenomenally well-connected and respected gent. Coming up on today's show, David presses the pause button on himself as it is for... Phil gets derogatory and then tries to rescue it. I suppose you're part of the furniture now, in any case. I would hate to be thought of as part of the furniture. <laughs> it's lovely furniture, though. And, well, to be honest, we don't really know what to say to this. Sitting on a vibrating parmesan machine <laughs> has to be one of my funniest culinary experiences. All that and a whole lot more as David talks us through his story and journey to date. What a delight it was to chat to David. He has some amazing stories from a truly epic career so far. I'm sure we only just scratched the surface. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, tell everyone you know. You can search us out on any of the podcast apps. For any feedback or if you want to come on the show to tell your story, search for Hospitality Meets across any of the usual social channels and send us a message. Enjoy. Well, hello and a very warm welcome to today's edition of Hospitality Meets with me, your host, Phil Street. Uh, today, we're in the esteemed company of something of a legend of the industry. Three times West End star. Is it three times? Uh, three times. Three yeah. times, yep. Yeah. Uh, and the phenomenally well-connected and all-round general nice guy, David Cowdery. Welcome. Thank you very much, Phil. That's a very sweet introduction. <laughs> Was it big enough? Uh, just about. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Did you mention legend? <laughs> uh, we can mention it again. We can keep going on the legend. No, that's great. So... Well, tell us who you are, David, and what do you do? Uh, Currently, I'm CEO of the Cavalry and Guards Club on Piccadilly, um, following a long career in hotels. Um, It started way back, um, and I suppose the confession to start with, Phil, that I had no idea why I went into this business. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to... I was all geared up to be a lawyer, and... uh, Somewhere in the back of my mind, something happened um, that uh, decided I didn't want to be a lawyer and I wanted to study hotel management. That's a bit of a sea change. A big sea change. And uh, the funny thing was, I remember I was working in my father's stables and uh, went up to him and I said, I've decided I'm going into hotel management. And the only thing he said was, have you told your mother? <laughs> which, which sort of indicates who wears the trousers in that house. But, um, yeah, and, and then I went to the careers master at school. And I said to him, I've sort of decided I wanted to go into hotel management. He knew nothing about hotel management. Right. I mean, this was the school that was gearing most people to go to Cambridge or Oxford and, okay. and the whole thing. So we looked up um, it up, and at that time you could only go on a degree course to two places. One was Strathclyde, right, um, which I know well, and one was Surrey at Guildford. Wow, I didn't I had no idea that, yeah. that back in the day. Back in the day, <laughs> there was they, limited options. They were very limited. So uh, I went home again, told told my parents. And my mother immediately said, you are not going to Strathclyde. (laughs) At that time, if you remember, uh, Glasgow did not have the best Uh, reputation. I I have first-hand experience (laughs) of that, don't worry. uh, I think it's reinvented itself in in that time. I think in a big way. Um, So I went to look at Surrey, and I just didn't like it. I didn't like the campus, I didn't like the university. 
Um, nothing against Surrey, nothing against Guildford. Um, so I sort of went back to my careers master and said, well, I don't think either of those are going to work. What, what are the other options? And he said, well, the only other thing is you do an HND, which at the time right. was the sort of entry level into management. And so I looked around at colleges and Bournemouth had the reputation then of the only college that sent its students overseas for a placement okay. and overseas to Switzerland. Um, which at that time, if you'd had Swiss hotel training, that was incredibly important. Yeah. You know, I think it's still of, quite yeah. uh, enamored, isn't it? As, it uh, as something to have on your CV if you can get it. Absolutely. And, uh, and at that time, all the sort of renowned top hoteliers had, had done Swiss hotel training yeah. of some sort. So um, I went down to Bournemouth and, of course, the attraction for me in Bournemouth was it was by the sea and I love the sea, I love swimming, yeah. I love the water. So I was like, what could be so wrong about spending three years at Bournemouth? Yeah. Which I did. And during that time, so I went the first placement to the Basel, to Basel, to the Bahnhof Buffet, which was an enormous challenge. Right. And I look back now and think how the hell did you do that I didn't my languages were very bad right I was in a kitchen environment where no one spoke English right um, how old were I, you at this time roughly so I'd have been uh, 18 18 just started sort of university right age yeah um, and an amazing experience an amazing grounding experience because the swiss uh, bahnhofs the basically the canteens on the railway if you like uh, in the station yeah um were so much more advanced than than the uk um, now we have much better options but yeah so much more advanced so i did that and then the second year placement i went to the savoy um, not a bad second year. Not a bad second year. And in <coughs> fact, um, I had a very good course tutor at Bournemouth who got me in there because he, he phoned up the Savoy group and said, um, we'd like to place a student with you. And in those days, the Savoy group was enormously um, snobbish <laughs> and elitist. And they said, uh, and nothing. we don't take students. We have our own management training program. Right. So uh, luckily my course tutor persisted and said, well, I think if you meet this guy, you'd actually take him. Right. Um, and I went to um, what was then the Savoy training officer, t- training office um, in Brooksmews behind Claridge's. And I met with uh, an amazing guy called Jack Schneider, who went on to be a, a big headhunter in the eight, '80s uh, for the hotel business. Right. And lots, lots of people, certainly in my generation, knew Jack Schneider. Yeah. And he said he was very happy that I'd, I joined, and I worked in the Savoy for six months. And then they, at the end of my college um, term, they, the Savoy company said, "Well, come back and work for us." So Great. it was the start of a career, really. Yep. So I was very fortunate. And I suppose my luck in my career has been that I've always been able to find the next step fairly easily um, from what I've done previously. Right. You make your own luck in this world. You do. Um, but also, I'm a great networker. 
Yeah. Um, and I think that's a key to, if you like a little bit of my success, that I've always thought that the only way you make luck is by meeting people and understanding what other people do and getting out in the industry and joining yeah. groups and, 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 and that. Because inevitably, even though it's a global industry now, and particularly even more so these days, it's still peopled by, it's amazing, you bump into the same people who work in Paris, who worked in London, who work in New York, who work in Singapore, the same names crop up. And particularly, if they've worked with some of the bigger groups, they'll they'll be just going around around the world. So networking is incredibly important. I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, obviously, I work in recruitment, so it's quite important (laughs) for that. But the thing that I've found even in today's world whereby you have a tech dominated world that we 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 live in now the there's some old school rules that still really really have major impact on how good or bad you are at, at recruitment and that is networking yeah people and meeting people and understanding people you know you can't a tech program yet can't make that happen they can't marry cultures together they can marry a piece of paper perhaps, but they don't really get under the skin of the human. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, all areas of hospitality, it's a people industry. Yeah. I'm often asked whether we can envisage people working from home more in our industry. Mm. And I have to say, it's a difficult one because a large element of our industry is about hands-on meeting people being with people being there for people yeah so the idea that you can do it remotely yeah. behind a computer is is kind of strange impossible actually. <laughs> yeah yeah going back to the the savoy management program i heard i used to hear stories about the sorts of things that they would not make you do as it were but uh, get you involved with and one of them that i always remember and this stuck in my brain was I, I can't remember the name of the chap who told me this, but he was basically put in the kitchen and he had to uh, sculpt uh, a rose in a bucket full of button mushrooms, basically, <laughs> and uh, with a cleaver it was as well. So it wasn't even with, uh, with a regular knife uh, or anything like that. And I always wondered if stories like that were true and whether you know, they, they, there was that kind of meticulous detail in the training of someone Do you have any insight or any experience of that type of training? Luckily not, because I didn't (laughs) do my kitchen training with the Savoy. So I'd I'd done kitchen training in Switzerland, uh, largely. But the great thing, it's often said of the Savoy management training program that it was sort of a lot of public school boys that were out for a jolly with the same mentality and and the same camaraderie that they'd had at school. So schoolboy japes and things that, um, yeah, I think were were very much part of that early days. Yeah. And the Savoy Company was a great company to work for. It had a very, uh, very much a family feeling, which it's always nice to work for something that's slightly smaller and more intimate. Yeah. And, and, and yet at the same time had a global presence. You know, everyone knew the Savoy. Yep. So uh, what happened next? Where did you go? So after what that? happened next? So 
in going back to the Savoy Group, I was offered a place at the Connaught um, on reception. And really, the placement on reception then guided the rest of my career because it was always front of house. I've, whilst I've had an understanding of food and beverage and been very happy to develop my own interest in, in, food, in food, certainly. Is that from a consumer uh, perspective? <laughs> from a consumer perspective. <laughs> um, and wine. Uh, I've developed those sort of as personal interests, um, but I've always done front of house. Yep. So I, I focus... So from then it was a sort of orderly progression from receptionist to chef de brigade to reception manager to house manager to rooms division manager to general manager, which is a sort of classic front of house approach. And the industry I joined, the general management tended to come much more from the front of house rather than the food and beverage side or or from one of what we would call the branches of hospitality, such as accounting. I mean, the idea that a financial controller accountant could be a general manager was fairly alien in those days because financial controllers were perceived to be these sort of people who squirreled away in accounts offices with a quill pen doing the figures. Good (laughs) old-fashioned bean counting. Bean counting, exactly. Good old-fashioned bean counting. So... I suppose, in a sense, I chose what was perceived to be the fast track to to general management. Yeah. Um, however, I sort of then threw a little bit of a curveball myself. I went to the Ritz after the Connaught and, and working through front of house. I then went to the Ritz, another very traditional property. Yeah. Um, but decided to do HR um, yeah. because they had a need for a, a, manag- a manager to step into the HR role. And I started off doing the training courses through the Hotel and Training Board at that time, the H, whatever it was, um, yeah. <laughs> HCITB, would that be right? Yes, Hotel Institute, yeah. I'll take you um, <laughs> So you did things like on-the-job trainer and that in order to train other people. And then I um, was the personnel manager. Uh, basically for the Ritz for a period. And it was extraordinary. I had no qualifications. I mean, again, the industry now values people coming in from different fields, whether it's HR or training and that, with those pertinent qualifications to that particular profession. Yeah. So you wouldn't think now of engaging an HR manager who didn't have HR qualifications, for particularly for a prestige property like the Ritz. Yep. Um, but in those days, it was a little bit, I suppose, amateur in, in its approach in management. And, and you know, young managers were expected to get a, an all-round as much you know, different experiences as possible. And that's what I did at the Ritz. Yep. And then completely off-piece, which I suppose for me was the, both the turning points, but also a great moment in my career. I decided to join the St. James's Club with Peter de Savary. Now, Peter de Savary was a great 1980s entrepreneur, still around. Right. Um, one stage owned Land's End and half of Scotland and, and <laughs> various other things. But he had this idea to develop um, boutique hotels. Now, nowadays we say boutique hotels and it sort of covers a whole genre of of properties. Very true. But 
really in London back in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, um, in the five-star market, there were all the big boys, Savoy, Ritz, Claridge's, Barclay. Yeah. And there wasn't much that could be offered as an alternative five-star, but on a very much smaller scale. Um, Anushka Hempel had done Blake's just prior to the opening of the St. James Club, and Peter saw this uh, thing whereby it was a quasi-club. There would be a membership sort of element around it. Um, but effectively, it was a small chain of hotels in the five-star bracket. Great support from some well-known names. I mean, at that time, on the committee were people like Michael Caine and uh, wow. yeah, all, all those Roger Moore, um, Sir John Mills was the chairman. Early um, adopters, eh? <laughs> in the boutique yeah, hotel exactly. space. And, um, and during those early 80s, Peter rolled out the St. James Club. So we did the opening in Paris, we did the opening in Antigua. And when we were going to open the club in, in Hollywood, um, in, in Los Angeles, I said, okay, I'd helped with the openings. I'd gone to Antigua to help with the opening in Antigua. Yeah. I'd gone to Paris to help with the opening in Paris. But when the opportunity came, to, I said, I want to move to Los Angeles. <laughs> really? <laughs> what was the attraction in that? Yeah. <laughs> Quite a lot of attraction. Yeah. Uh, but um, not least, I had a small Fiat Spider sports car. The beach was just down the, the freeway. Um, I was young, I was single, yeah. and it was a great time. So we opened the St. James Club Los Angeles, and very sweetly in a way, sweetly is the wrong word, um, but I was headhunted uh, by a couple of characters in New York called Steve Rubellini and Schrager. Now, they'd been famous for Studio 54, which was the big New York 70s, Discotheque. Right. And they've been jailed for tax evasion. I'm allowed to say that because it's on record. Yeah. Um, and they came out very much with a brief to open hotels. And they opened first a hotel called Morgan's um, with a designer called Andre Putman. But they hired me out of LA to open the Royalton in New York, um, which is still going strong today. Yeah. Um, with the designer Philippe Stark um, to do the interiors. And for me, and for me, it was the most extraordinary um, time in my life. Not least because it was my first general manager role. Um, I was still relatively young. It was uh, what New Yorkers like to call the cutting edge of New York. So, and Philippe Stark is still considered one of the all-time greats in in design and in everything was um, had a design element um, yeah. from three-legged chairs to all sorts of things that now have been picked up by other chains and have used but a lot of design elements went into the boutique hotel that was the Royalton right and it was amazing um, unfortunately Steve Rubel was dying through the process literally right he was an extraordinary character an extraordinary person to work for. And inevitably, he and I fell out. Um, I was... <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. He, I was too English and he was too American, I think. That's, that, we'll, we'll leave it at that. 
So I was sitting in New York, as you do, thinking, well, what is the next step in, in this career? And I'd, I'd sort of gone into a bit of a you know, hedonistic spiral of sort of thinking I was, you know, going to now go off the graph in, in, in terms of what I could achieve. Right. And a friend who was in New York for the Christmas um, phoned me up and said he'd just moved to Singapore as a general manager to Regent out of Hong Kong had taken over a Singapore property and they wanted to close it down and do a makeover and, and that and would I go as rooms division um, which for me was both a slight step back but also into the unknown yeah I can honestly say um, I, I love it now but the, the, the amount I knew about Singapore, I could have written on a postcard. Right. Probably even a postage stamp. Well, that's, um, that's, that makes it an enriching experience, though, doesn't it? I mean, the, oh, completely. The, um, it's what I, I say to anybody now coming from kind of any walk of life, travel as much as you can while you can, because it's the thing that really, really opens your brain to possibility. Completely, I completely agree. And also, firstly, travel is so much easier than it was in, in my day. Yep. Although, sadly, so, now... Did you still have to steam around <laughs> the, uh, the bottom of South Africa? To... <laughs> Not quite, though. But, uh, no, travel, travel in the sense of making arrangements for travel. I mean, yep. get, obtaining visas and that. But it's a global industry. And I also, when I mentor uh, university graduates now... I always say to them, travel, travel, yep. travel. If you get the opportunity to work somewhere else, it will broaden your horizons. It will give you an understanding of different cultures. I know we're becoming much more homogenous in, in terms globally of, of brands and everything else. But still, understanding people, the different ways of life and that, it's great. Yep. And that's what Singapore was for me. I hadn't, you know, I didn't understand the Asian culture. Um, I hadn't met probably many Asians uh, at the time yep. and uh, sort of in a, in a rather classic way I couldn't have told you the difference at that time between a Japanese and a Chinese and a, a Malaysian uh, person. Yep. So three and a half years there was challenging but phenomenal. I mean a great experience. We closed the property down. It had been a previous intercontinental property and we reopened it as the Regent Singapore. Right. And I had a thoroughly good time. The Looking at Singapore now, I'm visiting Singapore again, I, which I've done in, in recent years. I mean, it's grown even physically as an island because yeah. when I was there, they were reclaiming land. Now that's all built on and, right. and the sort of the hotels that people know instantly of Singapore, like Marina Bay Sands with the swimming pool that runs over the three buildings. Yep. I mean, all of that would have been in the sea in my day. So That's, it's phenomenal. It's incredible. Yeah, it's yeah. Phenomenal city. Phenomenal city and phenomenally nice people that are very driven and very motivated. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have any experience of working there. Lucky enough in my earlier career to, uh, I worked on cruise ships and uh, travelled in that way, yeah. Um, if you can really call that travel, but it did open my eyes to places that I wouldn't uh, have ever dreamt of getting to as a twenty-one-year-old. No. And Singapore was a place that really, really impressed me with its almost clinical efficiency. Yes. Um, and everything is possible because 
everything is so well organized um, no. that, that your, your, your brain is the only limit uh, it, as to in, what you can do. Indeed. And it, and it was a real, in, in, this would have been in the early, late 80s, early 90s now. And it was a real tiger economy, a growth economy, which was great for hotel business. I mean, the hotels were, they were adding hotels the whole time I was there, and subsequently they've added a lot more chains. Ritz Carlton came, um, Marina Bay Sands, as I said. Yeah. But um, no, it's been phenomenal growth there. So I was sitting in Singapore and thinking it was about time to come home. Right. Um, how many uh, years were you away at this point? Uh, five and a half. Okay. So the Regent was then going to open in London. So it was a natural choice for me to, to come back um, and say, okay, I'll do the opening in London. And I suppose if, I'd, if I've specialised in anything, it is openings of hotel. I've, I've now done about eight, I think. Right. Um, and it needs a particular... Sucker. <laughs> sucker. <laughs> um, it needs a particular number of skills because you're pulling together the designer's ideas and working with the operation to, to formulate something that is going to be to work in, in terms of delivering something to the to the customer, to sure. the end user. And that's always an interesting one. So we came back, and you will now know the property as the landmark, um, right. but that was the Regent. It was originally going to be Ritz-Carlton, then it was the Regent London for a short period, and, the, and then now it's the landmark. Yeah. But an interesting property, um, as you know, it had been previously the headquarters of, I think, British Rail for a, for a good number of years. Great spaces, big spaces. Yeah. Sitting slightly as a challenge in, in marketing terms in London, that it sat slightly outside what was the accepted parameters of five-star London in those days. Right. Um, but uh, a great property to work in. And from there... I then decided to sort of move back, I suppose, into the West End. <laughs> not the pantomime. <laughs> pantomime, yeah. No, not yet pantomime. Uh, no, I went to the Lanesborough. Yep. On the High Park Corner. Yep. And the Lanesborough was a lovely experience from, from beginning to end. Um, a very special property. Um, and again, I was house manager, sort of, in a way, general manager, the managing director who had been there, for, was there for years, Geoffrey Gilardi, fabulous yep. person to work for. And um, he and I worked very closely, and he at that time was developing other properties for Rosewood, which was the management company. Right. And uh, so it meant he was away a lot, and I got to run the, the property itself, which was great. And again... The theme that I suppose has run through most of the properties I've worked in, always high profile, I've been able to deal with household names that, you know, people you can come home and recount the tale of, you know, what Princess Diana said or what Michael Jackson said. Right. And people are always interested by that. Of course. Uh, <laughs> and luckily, from right from the early Connaught days, when I was looking after Princess Grace of Monaco or David Niven or... Dirk Bogard or any of those old Hollywood names yep. um, right through in a way to the current day 
um, with uh, slightly less famous but m more important members of the club here. Right. I suppose that's the theme. I've always had high, high profile guests and I've always enjoyed looking after them. Yep. But you, you're not one to get starstruck then by meeting an idol or, or someone No, like that. and amazingly, you know, I never ever had posters on my wall when I was a kid. I never idolised someone to the point of following them. I, I don't follow music particularly. Right. Um, so I never had a pop idol or, or that. So no, it's been fascinating meeting. because, And as I say, people are always interested to hear, oh, what was it like meeting Michael Jackson? What was he really like? Yeah. And, and certainly that's been a great asset, of, you know, a great thing that I've done in, in, in the career. But your, your guests would uh, respect that as well, and that's, I would imagine, why they would happily keep coming back to staying in a, a David Cowdery-run <laughs> property, because you I, can give I, them the respect that they, they're, they're looking for. I would like to think so. Yeah. I would I would like to think so. Uh, and also, I think you always have to just find that balance between being friendly but also providing a service. At the end of the day, you know, many of us in working in the hospitality business are fortunate in who we meet, um, but we are not their friends. Yeah. You know, so you... And I think you need to understand that when you work in the business. But it's but it's a lovely facet of working in hospitality. You, even in the, in the smallest restaurant, you might get a famous face walk through the door one day. Yeah, it just happens to walk by, and it's it's a lovely thing. And you so. definitely have to stop yourself going, "Wow, <laughs> who's that?" Yeah, yeah. Or can I take a selfie? <laughs> I, um, Which of course never happened in my day. <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. Well, it, there would have been a, a much longer process, I think, than, um, to to making that happen. But yeah. I, I. Um, a lot of the kind of the the stories that you hear about come come about because of interactions with celebrities. I'm not going to ask you for for any of them. I think anybody who's worked in the industry to a certain level ha would would have some sense of that and uh, the things that can happen. Some of my funniest stories come from interactions with celebrities. Yeah. But until my lawyers would get on it, there's, <laughs> there's no way in the world that I'd ever. No. Um, share that with the world but but I, I think Agreed. what people forget when it comes to celebrity I think is that these people are still human and that they're generally they still crave the same things that we all do yeah. uh, and maybe even more so in, when it comes to things like peace and quiet and yes there are some people who you know, want the paparazzi out front but then there are people who want to arrive in a car around the, the back door and, yeah. and go in and have their peace and quiet and I think people forget that these people still have to eat, they still have to go to the toilet, they still do all the things that we do. It doesn't make them any more special or uh, less special than than us. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I think you've hit it on the head there. They, they have the request in staying in a hotel, they want a comfortable bed, they want a quiet room, they... You know, those are the things we would all be looking for yeah. in, in staying hotel. They happen to be famous at the yeah. same time. And I think uh, hoteliers who perhaps in the past or in the future write about things that happen in, the, in a way betray a trust between client and 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 supplier, if you like. Yeah. Um, because there's a trust element there. Yeah. Uh, pr people should be allowed more privacy yeah, and there's some absolutely. pretty high profile cases of that in the news this week right? Yeah. But, um, 
we definitely don't need to go down that route. <laughs> um, let's keep it light. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so um, after the, the Regent, what, what happened next? So Lanesborough. Sorry, yes, Lanesborough. Lanesborough, yep. and then... I really should listen as a recruiter, <laughs> shouldn't I? Um, Lanesborough, and then I uh, was invited to open another small hotel in, in South Kensington, uh, the Bentley. Um, yep. which was an interesting name, if nothing else. Yeah, um, conjures up wonderful image. <laughs> I'm a car fan, so, uh, and that's yeah. it's my second favourite brand. <laughs> Good. And then a very short time at the Westbury as general manager before I came here to the club. Yeah. And the, the reason the club appealed particularly was um, I truly felt it in a way I wanted to get back to my roots, which was very personalised, service focused on people that I knew, um, which had been the case for the Connaught and the the Savoy uh, days. So you were dealing with people rather than numbers and a bottom line and everything else. And I think it's the lovely thing about clubs is they are much more people focused than hotels. And that's no thing against hotels but the but the nature of particularly the larger change is that they are very transient people come they might stay in this hotel four seasons hotel one week they might stay in a higher the, the, the following week they might stay in hilton yeah um there isn't necessarily a brand loyalty there um whereas clubs your members are your members yeah um you have them from uh, from from birth to death, as it were. Yeah. Um, and that's great because it allows you to focus on personalised service again. Yeah. So, what does your your role as CEO here actually? I mean, a role of a CEO conjures up an image, but what do you actually cover in your, your um, role here? Really, I suppose my brief is to look after the members own the property. Right. So you're, you have a responsibility to look after the property and manage it for the, for the advantage of the members. Yeah. And we recruit, when I'm recruiting, I say to all intents and purposes, it's like a small hotel. Um, and we recruit these days much more from the, hospita- the general hospitality industry. Yeah. People see clubs as another option. Um, rather than, oh, they're very different and it's a very different world. It's not really a very different world. But my responsibility is to keep the club running on as a not-for-profit organisation, yeah. um, which is important, but also with an eye. Where clubs have failed in the past is that they haven't looked to the future and say, how can we tweak, how can we make this club fit for purpose in... 20 years time and 50 years time yeah and just having a nice building isn't going to cut it you do have a very nice building by the way <laughs> thank you um, we've been lucky enough to to um, spend some time in there through the pantomime of course you get to spend a bit more time than most but the um it really is a phenomenal phenomenal yeah. building it's a great building and we the club is very lucky that at, at a time when it could have been um, altered dramatically in the 60s, for example, when a lot of uh, traditional buildings were being knocked down. Um, the club didn't have the money to do a major a makeover or that. So we have a building that is integral to it, said Wardian 1909 roots, when it was um, 
initially. So, but yeah. now have the money to refurbish it, which is lovely. Right, and that comes from being sensible, I suppose, with uh, with how you run the club and um, and build a fund that you can put back into. Yeah, absolutely. It is again because it's owned by the members. It is running a business that has enough investment from the members. Yeah. So taking enough money from them. Um, to maintain and improve and, and develop in a way that they would like it developed. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point though in a um, in a place like this where you have I suppose it's the same faces you see over and over again. But at some point that must transition as well with new members coming through. They have a different expectation perhaps from previous. So the the, the planning ahead element must be quite interesting I suppose it is uh, and making the club as relevant for the young officer of 22 joining yeah. as it is for the 80 year old who's been a member for 60 years yeah. um, and, and that's the challenge it, it's a slightly different challenge from as I say the, the, the hotel companies which can focus on the here today um, much more they yeah. necessarily need to think about heritage or continuing tradition or ethos or anything like that yeah yeah once the the revenue's gone it's gone it's right? gone hotel. exactly um, and they close it down and they make it over and they do something new yeah um, that doesn't that opportunity doesn't really exist for clubs yeah you either keep going and you improve what you have and and tweak what you have or you close the doors and that's it yeah no absolutely very interesting career you've had there thank uh, you so far <laughs> <laughs> but you seem you seem definitely very comfortable in your skin in this property um uh, i suppose you're part of the furniture now in any case I would hate to be thought of as part of the furniture. <laughs> it's lovely furniture, though. <laughs> it's good furniture. Yeah. Um, but no, I think the the challenge as you age, and this is a challenge for anyone as you as you get older, is yourself to keep to to keep fresh and interested and vital and and yeah. keep keep knowing what is going on in the industry. I mean, for f- for me, are you, I've I'm an age when. When I started out in the business, there was hardly a mechanical billing machine. You know, we had telex. Um, the telex was there. There were no fax. This is pre-fax machine. Right. Um, so the increase and use of uh, the whole IT technology field has been phenomenal. And I think, used in the right way, has benefited our industry. It yep. benefits me in keeping in touch with members on a on almost a day-to-day basis now. Um, it helps manage the staff, it helps communicate to the team. So IT has moved phenomenally. I mean, it, yeah. from, from at the beginning of my career, non-existent to where we are today. Yeah. Um, and talking to you now. Yeah, well, right, here we are, right? I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do this 10 years, well, I might have been able to do this 10 years ago, but I would have had to have hired a studio. Yeah. Somebody you know, hire the equipment and the tech. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, tech is just so easily available now, isn't it, to, yeah. to everyone? And I agree with you. I think it definitely has helped in some instances. There are some areas that are yet to be fully developed, I think. Um, the AI technology is moving forward at a rate of knots, and I think we've yet to see 
its full impact. But I think you know people have to remember that we we work in a people-focused business, and if you move too far away from that, then what's you know that doesn't really it doesn't feel like the right fit for this industry. Um, mm-hmm. But there are things that can make it more efficient. I remember um, going back to my cruise ship days when I first made the, mo- the move into food and beverage. One of the old school uh, bar managers. Uh, was used to tell me about what life was like before uh, <laughs> Micros um, and uh, F&B control generally. And, um, and he used to say, just, I'll not tell you the details, but put it this way, the, the captain of the ship, who has the greatest responsibility of all, used to arrive to the quayside in a Volvo, and the bar manager would arrive in a Porsche. <laughs> um, that's all you need to know. And um, so, you know, I think from a business perspective, it's definitely improved efficiencies it's maybe demotivated some people along the way or they've gone and found the different careers right? yeah. <laughs> but I think it's um, it's about balance right I mean yeah. you've got to get the balance right use it to your advantage but don't let it determine your A- soul absolutely agreed um, the yes technology is has been very very useful um, in developing certain things and and elements of design for example design of hotels all those sort of things that can be done and improved construction projects yeah it can be better managed so there are there are big elements of, of the hotel business per se or hospitality per se that, that have improved through it but you're right i'm not sure we're yet going to come up with a robot that is uh, sufficiently smiley and pleasant to yeah. uh, replace the human. No, we, um, we watched Back to the Future 2 um, <laughs> not that long ago, which was the futuristic one of the, the three. And there was a, uh, I think the weird thing about that is, is that the future that they de- uh, determined is now past <laughs> in, in real life. And they had, um, they had robots serving yeah. cokes and things like that. Um, no, we're, I think we're a long, long, thankfully we're a long way from that ever happening. Uh, never say never. Yeah. Well, it's always interesting because w- when there are new things that have come along, some sometimes they they sound the, the press are quick to say they sound the death knell of something. Yeah. You know, for example, when the Kindle came along, people said, "Oh well, no one will ever read hardback books again." Um, quite the reverse, I understand, is true. And yeah. and similarly. You know, as video and C- CDs develop, people said no one will go to the cinema again. Yeah. Again, cinema organizations are. I stayed in in a hotel, we use the term, in New York when I visited, um, that was completely self-service. You came in, you put your credit card in, you got a key, you went up to the room. No service involved at all. Right. And I remember when that first appeared on the scene, people said, oh, this is the way forward for hotels, you know. Right. We'll get rid of receptionists and concierge and, and everything will be done. Quite the reverse. Yeah. I mean, in a way, people are looking, and, and it's why there's been a growth in clubs um, in, in the last decade, is people are looking for a much more personalised environment. Yeah. You know, so having had the opportunity to go, if you like, down the high-tech route, People often then say, well, that's actually, that's all very well and good, but that's not what we want. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and I think the interesting thing about that is, is that there will be a consumer base who will see that as hugely attractive yeah. to, to not interact with anyone 
and just get into my room and be who I am and you know that's that's it and that there, there will be a marketplace for that I'm absolutely sure but I think the um, you just kind of have to put yourself in your own shoes you know what do you look for when you go oh. on holiday and um, and I like the the interaction with people and learning about yeah. what's going on around you it's the way that you learn about where you are um, a lot of the time but you know I suppose there, there is a marketplace for for everything there is a Batman focused hotel now I mean <laughs> who'd have thought but who'd have thought I also remember when they um, they came up with the idea the you, have you heard of the serial killer cafe in Shoreditch no. it's basically a place that just serves bowls of cereal and oh, I, rem- yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I remember when I heard that they were doing that I went no no, that's not going to work. <laughs> and I think they have multiple sites now. And, you know, so there's always, I think there's always a marketplace for certain things. But the, the underriding message for me about hospitality is that word. Yes. Um, you know, being served by a computer is not what I would classify as hospitality. Uh, you know, hospitality in its rawest form is when you invite people round to your home and you cook them dinner. You know, and that's that's kind of where most of us learn about hospitality. Yeah. But anyway, that's uh, that's probably a small digression point. But um, <laughs> but there we are. So along the way, you've interacted with I'm sure some right characters. What are the what are the funny stories that you can remember from your career, or has nothing funny ever happened to you ever? <laughs> <laughs> You're nothing funny. I'm deadly serious. Um, <laughs> So many funny things, I suppose, along the way. That you can I mean, repeat. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I always think that, you know, if, if you did them by yourself, then you can repeat them because uh, that... I mean, I suppose going harking right back to Switzerland days and the Barnoff Buffet, um, I was asked to... Everything there was on a massive scale. Yeah. And um, I was asked to grate Parmesan cheese. And this wasn't a jape in the Savoy sense that we talked about. Right. <laughs> but um, it was a whole Parmesan. So I thought, yeah, how do you do it? And they said, go down to the cellar and you'll find this machine. And anyway, basically, you put the whole Parmesan in this machine. But the only way, you know how hard Parmesan is, that you yeah, could yeah. hold it against the, the grater was to sit on this vibrating machine whilst the parmesan <laughs> was grated, the whole parmesan was grated through the thing. And sitting on a vibrating parmesan machine has to be one of my funniest culinary experiences. Um, and it's those sort of things, when you're by yourself, that you find amusing. Yep. Often, you know, you don't want to be amused at other people's expense. Very often you are amused in, in our business at, yeah. at other people's expense. For sure. Whether yeah. it's the drunk guest or the uh, slightly loud guest or, or that. So yeah. there's often amusing moments at other people's expense. But but having amusing moments when you're by yourself, I, I always think is good. Yeah, and well, in that circumstance, I'm guessing you don't want to be sitting on the Parmesan uh, for too long. <laughs> Definitely not. There was a moment to get out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how much do one of these things weigh? They're, they're, they must be like 25 kilograms. Oh, at least. Yeah. At least. Because they're massive, aren't they? No. Yeah. I, I remember um, watching a show with, uh, you know, um, Osteria Francescana, the Italian restaurant. Yeah. It's always up in the kind of the upper echelons. I watched a program with Massimo. Batura, 
who's uh, a bit of a, a legend in himself. And one of his dishes is it's something like eight ways with parmesan or something like that. And, but the, it showed you these racks and racks of parmesan, whole oh. parmesan cheeses, and it's just big. enough to make you dribble. <laughs> yeah, they are big for, for sure. Okay, well that was amusing, and uh, in the um, it's a moment in time as well where you don't know any better, right? But I mean, what other way, what other choice did you have for exactly. that time but to sit exactly. on the uh, on the parmesan exactly. cheese? But um, great. Okay, so you must have come across some challenges in your time as well. I mean, notwithstanding, I suppose the cultural challenges of relocating and uh, and the like. Yeah, I, challenges come in all different forms in our business. Yeah. Um, from obviously the challenging guest working on openings as I did uh, working with contractors is enormously challenging Yeah. so a variety of different challenges I suppose the challenge that I've sort of failed at if, if you like I, I would have preferred particularly on, on the, in the global sense now to, uh, to be able to speak language better Right. and conversing Conversing with people who don't speak your language yep. um, in different locations around the world is always the biggest challenge. Yeah. I found, and it's a cultural thing in Asia, but for example, as a generalization, they don't like saying no to you because it's a sort of loss of face. Right. Um, so it's very challenging in trying to frame when you're training, and particularly training new staff in Asia, is, is trying to work out whether they actually do understand what you have asked them to do. Right. Uh, without going, because if you just say to them, do, do you understand? They're all going to say yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, so that, that was a sort of challenge. Um, but, um, you know, I suppose cultural differences is a big challenge. And of course, the challenge nowadays is, is just finding stuff. Yeah. St- staff that are wanting to work in our industry, uh, um, motivated, and understand enough about the opportunities that exist. And I think everything that certainly the the older generation, if you like, in, in hospitality, their responsibility is try to engender the passion for the industry amongst young people. Yeah, and that is a challenge. Yeah. I think I agree with you 100%. And I think it's, I suppose, in any, what I've learned actually in the last sort of couple of years is that this is not just a challenge that exists for hospitality. This is a, a kind of a globalized uh, challenge, is the, the transition of generations. And it's not even about marking everybody with Generation Z or millennials or whatever. It's about understanding just kind of basic needs of human beings. Mm. And then how do you adapt business to that? Because that's the only way it'll work. It, you can't squeeze a generation into a certain way of doing things. You've got to kind of, both parties have to adapt. They've got to come to the, to the table. But I think the thing that I've always loved about this industry, and I think it's maybe, it's what we were talking about before we even switched the microphone on, is the diversity of opportunity in this industry is, I think, unmatchable in any other sector. It's, uh, you know, you can be, as, as we were talking about, you can be an engineer, you can be a, a finance person, you can do design, marketing, 
you know, it's not just about serving a table or cooking a meal or uh, you know, delivering a, a cocktail or whatever. And that's the message for me that, that needs to get out more, is that you know, our doors are open yep. as an industry to Absolutely. welcome anybody that wants to come in and give it a go. But you don't have to be one thing specific. I mean, you could even be a lawyer, going back to the <laughs> beginning of your career. Uh, you, know. you, could, you could even be a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and certainly you could be an actor because our, <laughs> our industry definitely needs actors. Yeah. Um, but no, you're absolutely spot on. Um, the, the, the range of opportunity, first of all, is extraordinary yeah. across hospitality. I mean, I suppose being in the Panto, one thing was being with people who came from all different branches of the industry. Yeah. But even within, you know, individual properties, you've got a diversity of roles, you've got diversity of people, you've got diversity of nationalities, yeah. and it makes it a great industry. Yeah. But the challenge is to, as you say, to keep attracting people to under, who understand that. Yeah, and I, I think the, the, the point for me is, is that, that that's not necessarily the message that gets out into the wider world is that sheer diversity of opportunity that uh, you know, and then couple that with the opportunity to travel the world and do yeah. that and not even travel the world but travel within your own country and um, you know the what what works in London doesn't necessarily work in Manchester or Leeds no. but it doesn't mean that the opportunity there is not any less you know it's it's just a it's a phenomenal industry but I think with limitless possibility the other message that I always I'm very quick to get behind is learn to walk before you can run. Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot of uh, unwillingness to work through problems now is just to walk away and go and find something easier. But actually everything that you want to learn is on the other side of that difficulty. That's what, the, the, what we always talk about, just in terms of th those are when the best learning experiences yeah, happen. Absolutely. Um, because every job has difficulties. It's not about it being perfect because that doesn't exist and you shouldn't expect it to but you know work through the issues that come along you know and ultimately you get stronger bonds with people when you do that you build better teams and better relationships and um, and ultimately better business yeah absolutely I I always say there's no such thing as a bad experience now that sounds always very glib but and of course there are in essence bad experiences but really, if you take an experience that perhaps you weren't comfortable with, that you didn't enjoy, but you learn from it, you learn why it wasn't good, yeah. particularly as it relates to other people, and particularly if it relates in a management role in the business. As a manager, you identify things that you didn't enjoy when you were working as an operative, yeah. and you take that experience, you think, well, when I'm a manager, I can build on that or I could do that differently or I can see where that went wrong. Mm. Uh, and that's why, I, as I say, rather glibly, I always say there's no such thing as a bad experience. You, it's just a learning experience. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, so what's, what does the future hold for David Cowdery? <laughs> what does the future hold for David Cowdery? Um, well, the old adage, when you can't do, you teach, I think is, right. is what they say. Yeah. But no, what, I, what I'm passionate about is mentoring. 
Um, I was very fortunate in my own career to have, whether it was Peter de Savary or my old manager at the, the Ritz um, or Paolo Zalka at the, the Connaught, um, people that I respected yep. in, in the industry and I learned from them and they were kind enough to guide me. I enjoy mentoring. I enjoy working with the younger generation on trying to take our industry further forward. Yep. Um, and I think that's something I'll always enjoy doing. Yep. So whether, I'm, whether I stop being a hands-on CEO, I think I will definitely uh, carry on the mentoring role, if you like, to, to other people and, and want to assist with the industry on a very general basis. Yeah, the, uh, the giving back the mentality. Giving, yeah, the giving back. I was very fortunate. I set up the Front of House Managers organisation, the UK branch as it was then of the AICR yeah. uh, back in 1986. And in a way, it's become my, my baby. I've seen it grow. It, it now encompasses 180 professionals in Front of House in in London, they've recently started up a branch in Scotland. And it's sort of, I, I now feel like the grandfather of that organization. Right. But it's being around to answer questions to support the young presidents of that as they come along. That for me is a, is a great role going forward. Yeah, great. If people wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I think that's probably the easiest way. I'm on Facebook. I'm, yeah. I love social media, so right. ping me a post. <laughs> Great stuff. And I suppose the last information from your brain, if you could give one piece of advice to someone starting out in this industry, what would you tell them? What would I tell them? Enjoy it. Very Enjoy good. Enjoy it. It's... There are so many reasons to enjoy, and I've always said, if you're doing something you're not enjoying, you're not doing the right thing. Yeah, I think that's a great way to wrap it up. David Cowdery, thank you very much for your time. (laughs) Thank you, Phil. And we'll, uh, well, I'll see you again soon. Yeah, thank you. And there we have it. What a delight it was to chat through David's story and what an epic career he's had to date. A big thank you to David for hosting us at the Magnificent Cavalry and Guards Club. Don't forget, we'll be releasing a new episode every Wednesday. But in the meantime, we'd love for you to subscribe to the show and give us a like and a share across all of your favourite social channels. See you next time.